Have any of you had colds recently? Got a cold my, right now. Oh, my son life. has, yeah. Last 10 days I've been, ugh, been dreadful. So I've been blowing my nose, which is not a pretty sight. Has it been a coronavirus, as colds famously are? Uh, no, no, it's just a cold, Steve. But everyone looks at you thinking it has to be coronavirus, but it isn't. It's a cold. Do you remember when we had colds? But no, colds are coronavirus. Yeah, they're all forms of coronavirus, yeah. I know, but are they really? But because we've been conditioned to think that everything is COVID, like, the, it, we've had to, we've, I mean, I've tested about five times just to kind of prove to everybody that it's not COVID, it's just a cold. But no, people don't want to believe you anymore. It's a bit but like, a cold oh, is it, a brand we, of COVID, is it? Or no, cold is it? They're all they're all forms of coronavirus. Oh Co- right, okay. COVID, it's news to me. Okay. So the SARS-CoV-2 is this strand of virus, and COVID-19 is is the specific disease caused ah. by that virus. But not all cases of SARS-CoV-2 give you COVID-19. Ah, interesting. It's a okay. it's a certain set of symptoms that are COVID-19. Yeah. Well, so it is, I mean, it's just. <laughs> but it, it's it's so um like it is bizarre that we just can't people are completely kind of unwilling to think that you might have something that's not COVID. It's really annoying. Yeah. Have you um have you seen the movie Contagion, which takes no. on a whole new a whole new meaning? Uh, now what we've been through over the course of the last couple the 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 first the first scene or the first moment of the movie Contagion is black, and then just a single cough, um which obviously then gives to this narrative about um, a, a global pandemic and it's just that that the power of the cough now is as powerful as that movie made it seem at the beginning because if you just cough in anybody's presence it's like, like a example, gunshot isn't it exactly it's just like everybody's like where did that come from like yeah. if you if you drink something too quickly or you just you know do something which yeah. is completely normal to have the reflex of a cough smoke, smoke 40 to 60 cigarettes a day <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> So you're in a you're in a position where now you you feel like when you just cough for, for a completely normal reason you feel like a complete pariah. Oh no, it is. Like, is... <laughs> Change. Oh! Ah! Although Hugh, you say that, and I agree with you, but unfortunately, a large majority of the people travelling between Manchester and London over the last couple of weeks on Avanti Northwest do not see it that way. Mm. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Andy Hinchcliffe, who was very disappointed when Channel 4 went off air the other night. Rory Smith, who was equally upset that Channel 5 went off air Mm. the other night. And Stephen Wyeth, who single-handedly kept BT Sport on air the other night. Stephen, would you like to explain your heroic adventures uh, of a Saturday night? It, it has been a, a fairly attritional couple of weeks. We've got to that stage of the season where Rory has to get on a jet plane again and Chinch gets the occasional midweek break. Um, but <laughs> it's just relentless football. And no more so than a couple of Saturday nights ago when Redby, who for almost 99.9% of people have no need to care what Red B is, but they are the people that put the television on air for you. They take what we are making or what we've previously made and they put it into your homes for you. They had a rather scary explosion and a fire at their facility in West London and had to evacuate, which is the reason that Channel 4 and Channel 5 suddenly dropped off air and the BBC at around about the time our friend Dan was about to do the passe doble on the Strictly had to <laughs> scramble to their backup generators. Sadly, BT Sport was on air at the time this happened, but they could not get off air. So they had to hand over to me ahead of the big Saturday night Italian game between Verona and Genoa. And that was it. I was on my own. I had no chinch or someone even better alongside (laughs) me and no way of getting off air. No ad breaks, no nothing, just away you go. And for two and a quarter hours... 
I talked. And boy, <laughs> Two and a quarter a hours? Boy, for a lot. Boy, what about? Like lot, what about? Thankfully, about the football game that was happening. Two and a quarter hours build up? No, 15 minutes build up. Then the first. Oh, thank God for that. I thought you meant right. Then Sorry. The duration of half time. Oh, then the second 45 minutes. And just as, just as it looked beautifully like the game was petering out to, towards a 2 0 Genoa win, which was a relief, really. Thought, right, we can just sort of slow this down, see it through to conclusion. No, no, Verona came roaring back, <laughs> scored quick, quick goals, made it 3-2, and then Genoa got an equaliser in stoppage time. It was just the kind of conclusion you needed after two hours of non-stop talking. So it was oh, just you, goodness. with literally no, no, not even breaks at half-time? Me, no, me and a microphone, and the audience. And is that because the pictures were coming from Italy, so Red B weren't responsible for them? Yeah, so basically, BT Sport 1, which was the channel we were on, was, was on air with a previous game. We're showing mm-hmm. a National League game live. So they were able to stay on air, if you like. What the Red B are the breaks in the chain. They're the bits that take you right. off air, play out the ad breaks, play out any pre-recorded content, and then they bring you back on air next time you have live output. We just segued beautifully from one piece of live television to, to the next. But sadly... The How tempted were you, live... Steve, to, to do like another voice? <laughs> I've ever told the story about Dan Mann, our friend Dan Mann, when he was working for Radio City, when he threw to himself, as he said, and over for the business news to Fergal McGonagall. And he basically put on another voice and pretended to be Fergal McGonagall and did the bit and then threw back to himself. Brilliant. That's a disgraceful uh, misappropriation of my story that I told you. Oh, okay. Um, Because it was Fergus McAndrew and it was. Fergus McAndrew. Not Irish. Oh, well, close enough. But again, that's surely, Steve, you think, oh, my Did, God, I've just got to break, I, break the monotony of this. I should have done Ron, Manage, Ron Manager. Just anybody. For, anybody. What do you make of Italian, that? What's the Italian for jumpers for goalposts? <laughs> um, Stephen also has the food for us. Not only a little story for us, but he also has the food for today's pod. Yes. So this isn't food I'm having right now. This is food I had the other day. I had, and I, maybe we can turn this into a, a, a quick sort of Q&A, quick uh, pop quiz. I had a sausage sandwich with a former Manchester United manager the other day, by which I had a sausage sandwich sat on the adjacent table to a former Manchester United manager. Who, who do you think that might have been? But when you say with, you weren't really well, with. I've just clarified that, Chinch. Yeah, 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 yeah. So again, you've, you've kind of sold us a bit of a story there, haven't you? You're in the he, same he, room as this person. It was, a, it was a very small cafe in yeah. sale. There's a clue. So we were sat very close together. Okay. Was it Wilf McGuinness? That would have been a lot of fun. It wasn't. Um, well, I mean, when was this? What day, what day of the week was it? It was Monday. So, I mean, I suppose theoretically it could be Moyes. Just Moyes, I would guess, still lives in the northwest. Does that would have been do? less fun, and it wasn't Moyes. <laughs> so it must be Fergie. See, I'm so disappointed in all of you that so soon after we did a podcast dedicated entirely to women's football, you haven't given me the most obvious answer. Of was it oh, Casey, Casey Stoney. Stoney? It was Casey Stoney. Oh, I, I would not have guessed that Casey Stoney was still a resident in the Northwest. She is, she is due to head to North America at some point, I believe. But she's from the South, isn't she, Casey Stoney? She's, she's from London or environs, which stretches to Birmingham as well. So am I. So it's you. Generic yeah, here we are. No, was, she, but... was she eating a sausage sandwich as well? No, she was having something a little bit more healthy. It was a yeah. sour, sourdough, sourdough bread sausage sandwich. <laughs> It was delicious. Oh, okay. I like Casey Stoney. She's slightly intimidating, but she's, she's, yeah. she's quite nice. And the football is. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? 
is it Shakespeare's plays? <laughs> no, there's plays in there. Was that's a bit of a it's a bit of a a tangent for the podcast. Is is that what we're doing? If you can get it onto that naturally, then I will yeah. I will high five you virtually. Um, we are talking about playbooks. Oh. Mentions, mentions of the NFL on reach, recent podcasts have been made by people other than me and have been met immediately by a groan from the very same person inadvertently bringing it up. Well, this time, I'm getting ahead of it. Uh, actually, Julian Nagelsmann is getting ahead of it. He likes the idea of a team learning and perfecting a series of pre-designed plays, but is it at all applicable in soccer? And that is to come. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast. Um, setpiecemanu at gmail.com is our email address. Find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. We start with something serious from Adam Bremner, who usually tells tales of things hot, both the dog and the tub variety. Um, so something of a departure from him. Um, and it is this. Gents, I refrain from a jovial intro given the topic at hand. We'd love to get your reactions, perspectives on the news emerging from the US, read the NWSL. Coaches fired due to sexual harassment and more. Allegations from national players of cover-ups. All games cancelled this season. Rumours on Twitter from credible sources of league president being fired. Maybe true when you read this. It is, Adam. Based on your earlier pod on women's soccer and a theme brought up then, do we think this would have happened if these teams were affiliated with larger clubs? Read established male clubs uh, that's from adam uh, rory's newsletter is now behind a paywall so this is a chance for him to add a, a few extra ears to the points that you raised in your most recent newsletter nice easy start hugh thanks the <laughs> you um, don't need to dwell on it it was just worth reflecting i think uh that's a really good point i hadn't occurred to me if they were attached to to, to established kind of corporate teams would the the workplace culture be more be safer for women probably because I think the issue with the NWSL with the, with the teams is that it's all felt so fragile. So, if you look at the testimonies from a lot of the players who've who've spoken out, not necessarily the victims, but people, but players who've come out and said that they've witnessed similar behaviour or that they've they've been appalled by the by the allegations of the behaviour, and that they kind of chime with their memories. Leanne Sanderson, who I think at least two of us know, said that she'd seen she'd seen something similar in in her time in in the NWSL. I think it's because. The players have been told for so long that they have to kind of swallow everything for the good of the league, that you have to kind of deal with the the poor conditions or the lack of healthcare or, you know, the poor pay, because you need to, you need, you need to, you're kind of, your it is your job not just to be a professional footballer, but to to support the league to make sure the league doesn't collapse. And that, that fragility is rooted in the fact that there isn't that sort of massive financial support behind the, the women's game in, in, in the States that there is in Europe. So maybe that would have helped but i think on another on another level it's to do with it's to do with predatory behavior it's to do with power dynamics it's to do with um lack of kind of accountability and i wouldn't necessarily assume that women's football in europe is free from that i think it would be dangerous to assume that this is an isolated case to do with bad cultures within the us sort of women's soccer framework there it, it certainly strikes me as possible that similar stuff, there might be similar stuff happening in Europe and we have to obviously guard against that as much as we can. I th- yeah, I, I'm not, I'm torn on whether women's teams should be affiliated to men's teams in the way that, the way that they are, but I, I would guess that that is one aspect that, that, is a, that is a benefit of the fact that they're attached to the men's team. It, it occurs to me that um, after receiving our most recent list of buffaloes um, from our buffalo watcher, John Billington, who's also in the States, um, that Adam isn't on it, which is remarkable because I think Adam sends us more emails than almost any other human being. Um, so, Adam, rather belatedly, add your name to the list 
uh, of buffaloes. Congratulations, Adam. Although perhaps we were holding off because that's quite right, Ginge. That, that is almost unanimous. Um, I was kind of hoping that he'd be the first person to invite us to do a pod at his house, given yeah, the I amount think of that's photos the that he said. That's yeah. the reason for the, for the delay. Definitely. So, Adam, we've given up on that, clearly. Um, Hang on, where does Adam live? Which one's Adam? He's on Long Island, New York. I think he might live in the Hamptons because he has a rather Ooh. spacious is, back garden with a hot the tub. With the hot tub. He's the hot tub guy. He's yeah. the hot tub, hot dog guy. Uh, Adam, congratulations, and thank you very much for, for a, a meaningful and thoughtful email, one of many that you sent. Um, here's Tim Daly, who's also in New York. Hello, SPM, MNC, TGW, and TPCP. Long-time listener, first-time emailer, future buffalo he says presumptuously i acknowledge that rory is on more podcasts than micah richards at this point but i hope he can carve out some time to respond to my email on the most important one the most important podcast he means of course i editorialized that i'd like to discuss last week's potpourri rory shed light on the tendency of fans on twitter to belittle the football culture in countries outside the realms of their domestic clubs usually so insightful i feel that rory missed the mark on fans of individual leagues i don't think many followers of football support individual leagues but attempt to vindicate their favorite clubs underperformance by overstating the domestic league standards. For example, a fan of sleeping giant Arsenal may be able to overlook their club's decline by overstating the demands of the Premier League, which leads to rebuttals from fans of other top leagues where Premier League clubs underperform on a continental level. Akin to stanning an individual player, football fans just want to be justified in their support, even if it means that they must be over the top in their criticism of another league to indulge themselves in believing that their club is deserving of their support. Fans of clubs overemphasize the strength of their domestic competition to rationalize the context that their current club is in or prepare for a crisis built by media scrutiny even before it begin, uh, begins. At PS, he says, I met a former teammate of Hinchy's, which gives, gives a, a clue as to that what kind of former it. teammate, yeah. Yeah. in Queens, New York. But oh. I'll save that, he says, oh. for Buffalo status. Hang on. No, that's holding. You can't do that. No, that's, you that's cannot do that. Be serious. Uh, so that's it. All the best. Millennial Tim in New York. Well, millennial, yes. The, the nature of your demands suggests that you are. Uh, chicken and egg, Tim. Would you like to be the chicken or the egg? Frankly, we're not going to give you Buffalo status before you send that, that, that story in. And then we will judge the, 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 the suitability of Buffalo status based on the excellence of the story. How about yes. that? Yes. It could the, be squirrel-worthy. It, it, it would also be quite fun to see if we could work out who the former teammate is. Yeah, let's... Yeah. But while okay. Chinch is doing that... Yeah. Uh, on, what, now? You want me to do that now? Just do it now. Okay. The, oh, no, no, maybe, t- we'll, maybe Tim we'll do it in a sort of breadcrumb fashion, couldn't he? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, 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 like through clues, a sort of yeah. succession of. Email. I mean, if it, the longer he's, the, the longer and and more fruitful the content proves to be, then the, the greater yeah. his chances of attaining Buffalo so, status. In a in a in in the fashion of a who am I question in Henry Kelly's going for gold. If yeah. you manage to get it in the four block, then well done to you, Chinch. But uh, we'll see if Tim. But we have to teach the listenership a lesson as well. So maybe we should yes play the game with him. He's probably going to hear this, isn't he? Which is a bit of a bit of a problem. We should be doing this on the quiet. Uh, Let him go through the process. We work it out. We all say it's a brilliant story, and then not give him Buffalo status (laughs) because they, the listenership, have to learn. You can't just throw this around. It it has to be properly earned. You can't, Ramsey. You can't blackmail us into this. Terrible, terrible behaviour. Can I just make a point on fandom? Please do. Does that? I find this really interesting. So we are recording this in the in the days after the WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram outage. Uh, which we'll all remember. I think books will be written about it. It will be... What's where, happened? You know, uh, the, the internet went down for a bit and, and people really? overreacted. I didn't, I didn't notice. 
No, you I'm not ex- surprised. Yeah, for once, Chinch, you had an excuse to ignore WhatsApp messages. I had a really depressing <laughs> morning when I woke up and the, inter- and the, the internet was backed up and I realised that I only had three WhatsApps and I was expecting loads. <laughs> the, and two of them were from you lot. And I didn't want that. They weren't even very interesting. Have you ever done that when you take, if you, have you ever left your phone behind, gone out for the day and really looked forward to coming home yeah. to see how many messages you got? There aren't any. It's so depressing. But, but you're, you, you're so popular, you probably do have loads and loads I do of messages. That, I do that on birthdays. So, for example, um, I don't, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but when I was on Facebook and people would send you nice messages on your birthday, I, I tended to, as you all well know, I like to ignore my birthday. I don't enjoy it very much at all. So what I would do is I'd, I'd leave my phone untouched and certainly Facebook uh, untouched <laughs> so that at the end of the day I could, you know, indulge myself very quickly to say thank you to everybody uh, for sending the messages and it's a very similar experience you kind of go oh it's going to be so many people it's like four by the end of it because they're all so pissed <laughs> off with me not responding to them spare, spare a thought for my mum who left the UK on a plane just as WhatsApp was going down so when she arrived at her destination assumed that her phone didn't work in that country oh, no. and we got a sort of panicked message from my dad in the early hours of the morning to say just so everybody knows your mum is okay we've we finally heard from her she she's used your auntie's phone to get in touch with us I'm like no no dad whatsapp's down we we weren't <laughs> expecting to hear from her. <laughs> she spent the first few hours of our holiday stressing that her mobile doesn't work oh. in foreign countries which, which country is she in she's in iceland oh wow yeah you've got an auntie in iceland no, no, they've travelled together. Ah, that sounds like a lovely trip. The I'm, I'm quite jealous now. The But also Iceland, it's not exactly kind of like the middle of the rainforest. Like I would assume my phone would work in Iceland. It would be upsetting to me if it didn't. Although there will now be roaming charges. Well done, everyone. The But the, the thing on fandom is that you do all these... This is really. This sounds like a weird point, and I'm sorry. Really sorry. The You do all these, all these memes going, going through of like on Twitter, which was still up whilst everything else was down, of kind of Instagram and Facebook users coming to Twitter when Instagram and Facebook's down, WhatsApp users seeing Twitter, blah, blah, blah. And I, I realised that a lot of it was is just done for likes and there's no real meaning behind it. But it made me wonder, like, are there people out there who, like, support one social network over the other? Does it, especially with WhatsApp... Like, is that I was supporting super... a league or one league well, or just, is this it, what you're but, trying to do here? So I think, that, I think that the internet has done something really strange to fandom generally in terms of music and football and everything but it made me wonder like do people are there people who are on 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 facebook or like on instagram there'll be lots of people who are on facebook but nothing else because they're old but are there people who are on instagram but not on twitter at all i mean i suppose there must be because instagram's much bigger than twitter and then are there people who are on like like everyone's on whatsapp surely like there's not whatsapp's different to all the others it's a different it functions differently like but it was, it was just this sense that you have people who who would who have only ever been on Instagram and then Instagram sounds a little bit like well I better sign up for Twitter then what the point of that be it's nonsense and it did it did seem to we do seem to have kind of siloed each other into you are an Instagram user you are a Twitter user you are a Premier League fan you are a Serie A fan it's a very odd thing and it's been done by the internet and I find it interesting you can't be both and if you are one you have to be against the other that it's just yeah just in everything it's incredibly strange you know what's coming next don't you next time that uh, Twitter do a big ad campaign somebody will post that's top quality respect from an instagram fan yeah exactly the the that that is quite a funny tweet though i would like to hear from listeners who are on apart from facebook who are on one of those social networks and have literally no presence at all on the other and i'd especially like to to hear from listeners who are on twitter and and or instagram but not whatsapp Enjoy the emails. (laughs) (laughs) 
send me send me a praise it. This is actually Rory's uh, cunning plan to stop Hugh giving out the contact information at the end of the show. That's I'd like everyone who listens just to contact us and tell us exactly what social media pro- social media <laughs> platforms you're on. That's all. Or you can just tell us on social media, which means that Steve has to deal with it. Uh, next to um, a, a buffalo who is a buffalo and definitely a buffalo and has deserved being a buffalo, Mark Cole, who has some tremendous advice on where to go next with Rory's efforts to make nostalgicizing an actual word, a word which is currently not a word, despite our continual use of it on the podcast, most recently during our discussion on SPM 249 about Jimmy Greaves. Dear Athos, Porthos, Aramis and Dog Tanyan. Excellent. Oh, no, I was so close there. <laughs> To me, there are two great ways to continue to try and get nostalgicizing into the popular vernacular and lexicon. Number one, get Susie Dent to endorse it. Uh, now, this is coming from an American, so I'm assuming that Countdown is also on in the States, or he is just an Anglophile. And number two, put it on a T-shirt, he helpfully suggests. And what better place than to start uh, than the set piece menu Tea Spring Store, which I'm assuming is a tea public spring store. I don't know. Anyway, uh, better yet, put it on a T-shirt and get Susie Dent to wear it on Countdown. Uh, so that's an excellent suggestion for Mark. We put it out there. Let's see what happens. Uh, here now is Patrick Halliday, who was our first and has so far um, deter- been determined our only squirrel. Um, <laughs> you might remember he's from this squirrel-infested Burlington, Vermont, which is the reason why he was a squirrel. Dear Nickel, Barnes, Aldridge and Grobbler, sincere if obligatory thanks for your continued great work. I do so look forward to seeing my feed updated each Wednesday morning. The calendar reads September here in Vermont and presumably in Greater Manchester too. It doesn't. We're into October now. That means fall colours for the influx of tourists, but squirrels too are busy, he reports. They rained acorn debris down on me this morning while hanging the laundry. But I digress. There is more. I'm writing in reference to the challenge of comparing different eras of football. In fact, the US does have a very good corollary. Baseball became professional at almost the precise time as football did in the UK. My St. Louis Cardinals and Liverpool FC both named 1892 as their foundational year. Today, baseball history can be divided in many ways, but one common fulcrum is 1947 when baseball began to integrate. This leads to a vigorous discussion as to which era had the best play. Before the Second World War, there were only 16 teams and baseball really had no competition from other professional sports. The best athletes played baseball. The best white athletes played in the major leagues. After the war, more professional options emerged, but so too did previously excluded Black and Caribbean players and more recently South American and East Asian players. There is both a bigger pool of players, but more athletic options too. I think this is something important that you missed in your discussion in SPM 249. Until very recently, English football was all white and all British. It is hard to argue that the quality of today's game is not exceedingly better than it was even 40 years ago due to a larger pool of players and ideas being drawn into the game. With the globalisation of players in the EPL, simple maths suggests that the quality of the players must have likewise, likewise improved. Instead of a couple of islands with 50-odd million people in 1960 to populate 22 teams in the top flight, you now have your choice of almost 8 billion people to populate 20 teams. Let this middle-aged white guy mansplain diversity to you middle-aged white guys. But truly, thank you for the great discussions. And merch has been purchased, he says. Uh, And finally, Colin Boucher, to continue the theme, is a buffalo for a number of reasons. Firstly, because he starts his email like this. Dear Josh, Toby, CJ and Sam. And Chinch, I don't know if you've watched The West Wing. Never. Uh, Well, Sam never will. Sam, well, you should do, first of all. Mm. Immediately correct that. And secondly, Sam Seaborn is Rob Lowe. So that's coming last yeah. is something good. That's good. That's good. How long would it take me to watch the whole of the West Wing? It's seven series of 22 to 24 episodes each, uh, 42 minutes. Um, and it is the best television show ever made. So, you know. That's going to eat into my gym time. So I'm never, ever going to watch it. Uh, he starts with Love the Show, which is the original reason why I said that he was Buffalo. Episode 249, he says, grab my attention for two reasons. Number one. 
While listening, I experienced an aftershock following an earthquake earlier that day. And number two, the excellent content. It got me thinking about Nat Lofthouse, who scored 30 goals in 33 England appearances. I'd be surprised if there's a better goals to games ratio anywhere at international level, excluding David Nugent. However, Nat played in an era where you could barge <laughs> goalkeepers into the back of the net and score a goal, as he did in the 1958 FA Cup final. He'd probably be sent off for it now. It's on YouTube if you've never seen it. I recommend it. Uh, Nat was a great player of his era. I personally think of his era is the key phrase here. Defining eras is where it becomes harder. Google defines an era as a long and distinct era of history, which is strange to think that the word that you're trying to describe is actually included in the definition, but still. Uh, it makes post-war and then post-Premier League era make sense, as you discussed. I tend to think of black and white TV pictures as, as a different era, but it's hard to define. I'd say in 20 years' time, we'll be talking about an era of super coaches, starting from Jose at Chelsea, part one, until Guardiola and Klopp and Tuchel to part the league, and certainly on a global level, the Messi-Ronaldo era too. Comparing records of players in different eras is relatively futile, in my opinion, as there's so many big changes between them that it's uh, difficult comparing like for like. However, records as strong as Jimmy Greaves should never be forgotten or be reduced just because it was in black and white. Don't caveat his achievements with the timing of them. Ultimately, it doesn't matter when the player was as good as Jimmy was, says Colin. I suspect that this era will be the Messi-Ronaldo era. Because the super coach thing is slightly more woolly, that you, you can go back through history and say there have always been super coaches. It's just that we're kind of hyper aware of them now and we tend to have the, or maybe we not tend to, but we, we kind of have the media infrastructure that enables them to become these massive figures in the way that Jose or Pep or Klopp have become. But if you go back through Elenio Herrera, Shankly, Busby, you, even back to Herbert Chapman, you know, the football's always been defined by its, its major coaches. I think what will stand out about this era, and in fact, my friend Josh Robinson has a, a book due out at some point next year called Messi v Ronaldo, um, which looks at how th that dynamic has changed football, which I personally think is an excellent subject for a book. Slightly annoyed I didn't think of it. Um, the, that is the thing that has stood out over the, I guess, between 2000 and... When did, Messi, when did Ronaldo join United? 2003? Yes. It will probably be the period 2003 to 2023, which is when one or the other of them might retire. Might be when Ronaldo leaves United for the last time. Um, that that 20 year period, I think, will will be the Messi Ronaldo era. That's the thing that has defined it. Is, has there ever? Could we say there's ever been an era of football where it was easier to play, or did every era of the game have its? I would say that so if, anyone if who excelled at, at any era deserve credit because it was never easier in the 50s to play than it is today or I think that's basically true except if you look at being a left-sided defender between 1986 and 2002 it would, would appear that it was a piece tough. of piss to be honest um, it was a piece of piss but I made it look incredibly difficult <laughs> Um, Colin is also a Buffalo because, to my knowledge, he was the first to notice that last week's episode number was 251. Uh, now, we've missed out a number once before, and this time it was for the same reason, because today we can announce... Um, there was enough music on the programme last week, so I'm not going to do a fanfare, although there are at least three trumpets in the room in which I sit. Um, we are announcing a live show. Why not <laughs> three trumpets? Is that a euphemism? <laughs> how many trumpets are there? Yeah, how, many trumpets three? how many trumpets are there? Come on, show us your trumpets. Did I did I kill the big announcement with, my, <laughs> with my it's, at, it's, it's at least three, just in case I get it. It's not as it's at least three, but it's not as high as four. There is a fourth in the garage, uh, so that's why. Why do you need so many trumpets? 
What are you well, doing? Steve, Stephen will understand. One's that big, one's that big, and one's that big. So Is that in case you need to be in some sort of miniature bathroom? <laughs> Whether it's cold or hot. <laughs> yes, just expands. Um, so, is there know, a trumpet for all occasions as there well? Is. There is. There is. Yeah, is, is, that why you, is that why you have this range of trumpets? Just in case anything happens, I can, I can go along with it with my different sized trumpet. Orchestral? Yeah. Classical? Yeah. Baroque. But cavalry charge, which one would you go with? Oh, well, that, that makes... Then in that case, there's there's six in total. Oh. And why, do you have a selection of bugles as well? I have one bugle <laughs> and one hunting horn. Because... I'm not hunting horn! <laughs> Brilliant! Since, oh, since, he, since he was moved house nearer to a park, he, he has to more regularly go oh, on a cavalry Oh, look at go. this! What's that? It's a hunting horn! Oh, magnificent. Oh, this is a piece menu. Are all the Leicester are all the Leicester fans going to go crackers when you blow this? (laughs) (laughs) He can't get his end in. (laughs) It might it might have it might have resized sufficiently in the move for me to not be able to put it together. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there we go. That is that that that's how to start a big announcement. Oh right, yes. So there it is. We did get the fanfare. Okay, so here we go. This uh, this is a long walk down this road, isn't it? Set Piece Menu Live uh, will be the penultimate event in the eighth annual Football Writing Festival at the National Football Museum in Manchester. It is on Thursday, the 4th of November. It is starting at 7pm. The full price of the tickets, and I make that point very uh, forcefully because there'll be a reason why you don't have to pay full price. The full price of the tickets is only £8 plus booking fee plus booking fee. £8 plus booking fee. Um, There are, during that week, plenty of in-person online events that are taking place across uh, the first week of November at the National Football Museum, and we are playing our part. The full details of the lineup of the Football Writers Festival uh, is uh, available on the National Football Museum's website, which is also where you can go to buy your tickets right now to watch Set Piece Menu Live on the 4th of November at 7pm. And here's the thing, there is a discount code. If you put Set Piece Menu, all one word, Set Piece Menu in, you get 10% off your tickets. Um, now, the kind person at the National Foot Museum has helped arrange this, says that that is optional uh, because the National Foot Museum is a charity. So if you want to get your ATP back and you feel good about that, that's absolutely fine. And you can do that if you would like. However, if you want to pay full price, then clearly for a charity, uh, that might be a nice thing to do. The uh, 4th of November at 7pm, that's at the National Foot Museum in Manchester. You can watch us do a live show and it will be SPM 250. It's it is a treat for the people that can get to the northwest. But I was I was yeah call it being badgered by two people count them two people at Crystal Palace asking when we are going on tour and when we are going to do a live show from London. Are there any anything in the pipeline that could happen? Maybe. So we did one hundred. We did two fifty. So maybe five hundred. Five hundred. <laughs> Horrible I'm idea. Dead. Well, you're going to take my rotting corpse along. What the, how, is, how am I going to get to 500? How long have we been doing this non Too long. Uh, it'll be five years in December. So it's taken us five years to get to 250. Yes, that's the kind of the 50, 50 week in a year kind <sighs> of That maths. does work, actually. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> the, that would mean that we need to do another, another, another five, five years to get to 500. We should do one in London, but we need a, we need a 
thing. We need someone to ask us, don't we? Yes, we need somebody to ask us and we need somebody to pay for us. So that's essentially how that works. But nationalfootballmuseum.com, nationalfootballmuseum.com um, is how you get hold of your tickets. Thank you very much indeed. Make sure you do that. Otherwise, you'll be really embarrassed if it's empty. Um, right then. Now, that was a very long correspondence ses- uh, section. You appreciate why? Because I had to find the sixth of my six trumpets. Uh, now, talking about the NFL on the podcast is not universally well received, almost like at least one of many trumpets. Can I go? And- <laughs> you can't go unless you go and find one of your tr- trumpet. No, that sounds completely sexual. So talking about the NFL on the podcast is not universally well received unless you do it because Julian Nagelsmann did first. This is the shroud under which I hide. The Bayern Munich head coach has now twice brought up the idea of football following American football, and it's okay because he's cool, so we can talk about it. Apart from calling for increased communication between players and coaches, a real-time back and forth during the game, uh, he's also proposed that soccer adopts something like the playbook seen in the NFL and, of course, other forms of American football too. This is the list, a book, if you will, of the plays each head coach has conjured up for their team to execute during a game. They are designed by a coaching staff and then learned by the players. And as Kansas City Chiefs head coach Andy Reid told Nagelsmann recently, uh, there will be, by season's end, around 500 of them. They range from a simple run from a running back to a wild trick play. But each player involved knows exactly how that play works and their role within it. So Nagelsmann likes the idea of instructing his Bayern team in a similar way, asking them to perform a series of preset movements and passes in the more fluid version of football. Is this as outlandish as the scoffing you can hear Stephen attempt to hide suggests? Funny, because Stephen's scoffing is usually very, very loud. Uh, Or, with the introduction of more specific coaching, even down to the originally much ridiculed throwing coach at Liverpool, and the success of the set-piece work done by England at the 2018 World Cup, is football actually heading in that direction already? And more importantly... If Andy Hinchcliffe was plugged into a two-way communication device during a game, would he be using it to order his post-match Chinese takeaway? Uh, well, I, I, no, I couldn't. I'd just have to think what I want. I couldn't say it, could I? I think Nagelsmann would be very unhappy if I was thinking about the, uh, the takeaway I was going to have post-match rather than the, the moves he was looking for me to affect. Um, but they, surely we've, we've been doing this with set plays in football for, for quite some time. Is it possible to have kind of a playbook when the the game is in motion it, however slowly it might be is it is it possible to have a designated pattern of play because again you've got your opponents up against you so it makes it a little bit more tricky to do that but we have been doing it for quite a while in terms of, of set pieces throw-ins all that type of stuff so Nagelsmann's idea I think is to have an ability to be able to communicate during the the, the fluid you know play yeah. of football when the ball is in play uh, mm. To be able to say to, for example, one player, a goalkeeper, a defender, as that passage of play is beginning, to communicate what he wanted wants them to do, and then they were to execute that. So it would be a preset series of movements and passes that would, that would then obviously be so devastating that no team would be able to stop it. And he wants to be able to, to at least have a list of those plays written down in a playbook, and those players learn it so that they are then able to execute something so specifically and so perfectly that it, it, essentially nobody nobody can stop them. So that's that's the, the the application that he's talking about. But the point that I'd like to make, and I'm sure we will, as you mentioned, Chinch, is that we are already heading in that direction anyway because of the things that you just mentioned. Unusually for a Hugh episode, this is quite an interesting subject. And right there. That seems on, strange, doesn't it? Spot on, Rory. This is, this is an odd, this is an oddity. He's, he's come up with a subject that suits him but is actually interesting. It's an, strange. an oddity has come up with an oddity. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, yes. yeah. The, is this like a good Meg episode from Family it, Guy? This is a good Meg yeah. episode. Every so yeah. often there, were there will be a good Meg episode. There, there will, I can't talk to this cold. 
that there will occasionally be a good med episode. This is a good Hugh episode. So we should remember, of course, that in the in the NFL and other forms of American football, there are also opponents. So you can the the Chiefs will run a play and somebody will bat the ball out of the sky or whatever they do. And that will be, right, we've done that play, so we'll have to try and do something else differently now. It's not like every single play that is prescribed in the NFL comes off. And in the same way with football, if you had that system, it would be the case that, you know, your defensive midfielder will pass it to your winner and then your winner might get tackled and the play would would be cancelled. That's that's fine. That's not particularly different. There's no reason it should it shouldn't work because of that. The, the one thing I would say is that I think we, th- this is a form of football that probably already exists and has existed for some time. So I'm going to channel my inner Jonathan Wilson, I know, Donna Tweed jacket, think exclusively about long anecdotes about cricket and hockey. Right, here I am. <laughs> Valerie Lobanovsky, the legendary Dinamo Kiev coach, had a system that was similar, that where, whereby if a, his players were taught that if one of their teammates had, let's call him Serhi Rebrov, had the ball in a certain kind of quadrant of the pitch, they knew which runs they had to make, which areas they had to fill. They each, the entire team moved in a, in a set sort of coordinated movement. And it's the same, I think, with with coaches like Klopp and Guardiola, that I think that when when Liverpool and City have the ball in certain areas with a certain player, the rest of the team knows exactly where they're meant to be running and what they're meant to be doing. I think we already have that kind of playbook thinking even if it's not written down in a playbook where Nardelsman's maybe taking it further is by saying he wants to be able to communicate to his players at any given time right Joshua Kimmich has got the ball in this area we are going for 3-5-1 and that means that Leroy Sané runs here and Serge Gnabry runs there and Robert Lewandowski stands roughly around the penalty area and scores a goal and <laughs> that's how it works that is a very that is a very coach-centric view of football it's, it, it is not surprising to me that a manager like Nardelsman has come up with that idea or would at least be in favour of that idea because he is someone who sees the game as being, as Guardiola and, and Klopp to an extent do, um, about the coaches. He That is turning football into a different sport where it is less... You take do... away the individuality well, that's it. of the game. It's, that's what makes it interesting, Chinch, what, what yeah. makes it rare for a Hugh idea that it, it's basically the coach saying, I want to control every aspect of it. Because at the moment, the coach can have the best ideas in the world, but they are essentially reliant on the players to execute and to remember to execute those ideas on the pitch. What Nardelsman is doing, and it's inter- it's not surprising, as I say, that a coach who sees sees football basically as a tactical battle between his brain and his opponent's brain, with, with the players relegated effectively to chess pieces, that he sees that as a, as a, as a sort of desirable shift in football whereby the coach gets to say to the players this is what you have to do at any given moment that's a very coach-centric view of football it takes away the virtuosity it it removes it changes football funnily enough from being a contest between 11 players on the pitch that's largely settled by finances to being a battle more of a battle between the coaches on the sidelines that is also largely defined by finances I had, just to back Rory up, I had a, a conversation with Tony Dorigo when I was doing an Italian game with him once about a very similar phenomenon that he experienced when he spent a season playing for Torino in the late 1990s, who were in Serie B at the time. And the thing that the biggest difference he found, having left Leeds and spending that year in Italy before returning to England to play for Derby, was that idea of what he described as shadow play, the amount of time in training that was 
dedicated to simply, if this happens, this is what you do next. So if Tony Dorigo controls the ball in that area of the field, this is what everybody else has to do next. And if another player has got the ball, this is what Tony Dorigo is expected to do. It was all rehearsed over and over again until they were able to do it perfectly in training. And then the idea was that it would be, you know, effectively it would be muscle memory in a game, that they would follow that through. But as extraordinary as he found it to be being asked to do that in training, they were even more staggered that that wasn't what was happening in English football. But but I think and that that is that has always been the way and it, particularly there's always been loads of shadow play in English football. Chinch will have surely done loads of shadow play. Yeah, yeah. Pul- yeah, Pul- yeah. Pulis built his entire career on shadow play, but it's largely I think for a long time was used defensively. Yeah, it was used to sort of set up. This is this is where you need to be when the ball's in certain areas, and it was to to get the team shape right mm-hmm. in when when they didn't have the, against the ball as mm-hmm. as fancy people would say it now. The um, if you look at Liverpool's first goal against Man City in the titanic tussle in the Premier League the other day, not the Salah goal, the Mane goal, that is very clearly a rehearsed pattern of, of passes, very obviously. Uh, Gary Neville was did some excellent punditry work. I mean, it wouldn't have been quite as good uh, as if Chinch had been doing it, obviously. Yeah, but yeah, a, a, a close second in that he had yeah. spotted that two or three times and that, that it was obviously very gratifying to him that the goal came from exactly that pattern of play that he had spotted them try to do. Yeah, it's clearly ball goes out to ball goes out to Salah from so the centre back breaks the line, gets the ball to Salah. Salah then plays it back to I think Milner or Henderson into Fabinho. Salah makes the run down the flank, and the ball is he that kind of opens the game up. As Salah comes forward, Mane is told come in from the left and run run diagonally across the box. That is that is a set pattern of play. That is a playbook move without a shadow of a doubt. Liverpool will practice that, and I think it's one of the one of the big misunderstandings of in the age of the front threes that it's all to do with with kind of impromptu, off-the-cuff brilliance. It's not. That is Salamane and Firmino, more, probably more than any other, but they're, they're, they're all exactly the same. They are trained exactly as, as Steve was describing, that this is where you go when the ball is, when this player has the ball in this situation. And the midfield are trained to how to, to get the ball to them in, 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 in those set circumstances that that's how modern football works to give you a, a, a hipster example of that uh, Eintracht Frankfurt a few seasons ago when they had Sebastian Allaire uh, Luka Jovic and Rebic playing as their front three they had some unbelievable initially everyone thought what, what amazing chemistry these mm. this trio of players are suddenly found but then when you actually broke it down and looked at the analysis the movement was exceptional and those players all earned big moves elsewhere at the end of the season which they were prolific altogether and and none of them fulfilled their potential mm. anywhere else because it was the brilliance of how they played together if that that it, it was that community that unity that worked for them as individual assets they, they weren't able to to have an impact at the clubs they then all subsequently moved to how do we feel as as fat watching that if if we yes it is great and it is kind of um it's been coached. It's been trained. That this is the play. It has. Well, it's not off the cuff. It's not instinctive play. It is designed. Is that still as admirable as if it wasn't all planned out and players were having to build up these relationships and understand how each other plays? Does it take away a bit of the the, the glamour and the glory of it? If you say, well, actually, they've, they've practiced this fifty, sixty times in the week leading up to the game. Does that, is it still as admirable? But there are we've we've spoken about shadow play being defensive certainly in the English tradition. If you think about those those people who who adopted that, or indeed those 
those coaches who are known for their kind of drills based or even the tactical mm -hmm. periodization, which is something we've spoken about before. Like a, a coach like Jose Mourinho, in an attacking sense, having worked on structure and being compact and everything in a defensive sense, in an attacking sense, that, that I don't know how accurate this was towards the end, but certainly beginning with, with Chelsea, he would essentially say that the front three or front four, depending on what the formation was, you, I'm, I'm just kind of like leaving you guys to, to yeah. figure it out. You are, you are the individualistic talent within this team, so you go figure. To a certain extent, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's United now is being accused of doing the same thing as well. That once once you've got the ball, you know you 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 know what you're doing, so you just go figure. I'll I'll sort out everything else. So the individualistic nature of that that you're talking about, Ginge, is actually something that is criticised and something that doesn't necessarily work particularly well. And to apply the individualistic streak to the playbook idea in the NFL is that, yes, there are a series of pre-designed plays, but there are a myriad different ways that that play can either be up against the defence and the mm -hmm. defence have their own plays. And so you've got to be able to read that defence. You might be able to change it just before uh, the play goes off. So, for example, if you've got a particularly good quarterback, the quarterback might be able to spot the defence and be able to to change it's the play. Defense. Defense, basically. In this, defense. In, in this, in this yeah. particular context, it is the defense. The defense. defense. The noun. The defense. The, the, the team, defense. The defense. And so they, they, they do things in a way that will make you change that. Now, do you change that in the moment? Do you, you change that the, based on what you the people, see? The people changing are the offense, yeah? Uh, the, no, that's the offense. And it's very the simple. Offense. The offense and the defense. It's very simple because when in, in the crowd, you're a fan of the defense, you've got a letter D and then Stop you've got a white picket fence. Stop it. Oh, Immediately. The so letter what, what? D, the letter D and a fence. Letter D and fence. That's why it's defense. Um, and then you I'm so taking you, offense to a lot of this. <laughs> yeah. oh. You're taking offense to it. Um, oh. <laughs> there is there is Tell an, me now. there is there is the, the individualistic streak, and often those those quarterbacks who are able to do that are the best and are considered to be the best because they are able to read those moments and react to it. Yuma Holmes. Yuma Holmes is your Tom Brady's, people like that. Peyton yeah. Manning. And sometimes those quarterbacks will actually call a different play based on what they see because the communication stops at 15 seconds before the end of the, the play clock. So they can't talk after that point. So if they spot something, they have to be the ones to change it. And so there is genius involved both in the design but also the execution sometimes from those individual players who are supposed to be doing one thing but realised another thing would be a better way of doing it. Is that an audible? An audible is if you change it at the line of scrimmage just before the play happens and you shout it. You basically just shout right. it to, to, the, to the offensive don't do that. and your receivers. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. The, don't do that. Do something else. The, Ch panic. Change of plan. Ah, they the, spotted it. So Hugh, Hugh is now doing his best to make this a boring Hugh episode. So I'm going yeah, to try you're ruining it. what was a really good piece of work. The, You've ruined like, it in the last two the minutes. The, the, of American football content. Yeah, but the, the, the point that I'm trying to make to you, Chinch, is that if there is a criticism of this... Why are you making the point to me? Make it to everybody so no, we can all slag you off. Because your question <laughs> your question was about is there is there a, an element of the individual being taken out of this? Yeah. And I'm trying to say to you that no, that is not the case, certainly in the examples that I've been trying to give from one sport, but yeah. also in the way that Rory said about somebody being tackled or something happening, there is an, an ability to imply, apply the individual on it because things don't happen perfectly as if written down every time. I'm going to use another example in a more interesting way than Hugh from the Liverpool City game, which is the first goal was very much a playbook goal, the first Liverpool goal. The second Liverpool goal, the Salah one, very much not a, a playbook goal. That was entirely Mohamed Salah being brilliant at football. There would always be space for that because you, you, you have this tension even now 
between the playbook, the co- the coaches giving the players certain instructions in certain situations to say this is how this is what you do when Tony Dorito controls the ball on the left wing. That's that's kind of what the coaches are there for. But at the same time, a lot of modern football is about controlling chaos. That the whole idea of counter-pressing is to create breakdowns in the play. And in that moment of breakdown, there is chaos and you can master the chaos. Sometimes that will be through a set a set movement, but sometimes it will be through individual interpretation of the situation. What Salah did is the prime example of individual interpretation. And I think all leading modern coaches would create an environment where that's encouraged and allowed and what have you. And sometimes you are reliant on individual brilliance. Messi's goal against City for PSG is a really good example. That, that that was an individual thinking, I know what to do in this situation. I'm going to go and do it. And I will tell I will play a pass to Kylian Mbappe that means he can immediately interpret what I want him to do. Is that a combination of the two? Yes, because of where he started. As you started your piece, Rory, you started your piece by saying this is where he picked the ball up because he does all the time. And that's not a coach's playbook. That's Messi's playbook. That is, I know what to do in this situation. This is exactly what I have been doing for 15 years in this situation. So I'm just going to do it again. And my guess is you're not going to be able to stop me. And in that case, he was totally right. Yeah. And he's he's stuck the ball in the top corner from that sort of position thousands of times, whether that's in games or training. But there's an element of, as as well as the the pre-rehearsed move, there's an element of instinct and muscle yes. memory and familiarity taking over. We, In fact, we've seen him do it so often, we knew what was coming next. It, with the one slight, this is a tangent, but the, with, with the, one, the one trick that he pulled was that wasn't the finish. The messy finish there is low into the, 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 into the, the left hand, his left-hand post. That's the messy finish. That's what Edison was expecting. That's what Messi shaped to do. The real moment of brilliance in that goal is that at the very last second, he shifts his weight and he, he sort of fades it into the far corner. And that was, that was clearly what did for Edison. Edison had already moved his weight. Messi changes his finish. Presumably, does he sees Edison shift his weight and you get this look of horror on Edison's face as he realizes that, Me- that Messi's completely done him. And that that but that is that goal was all about Messi, as you say, knowing, reading the situation. Every single thing that Messi did in that goal was waiting for the pieces to fit together. So he waits for Hikimi's run down the right to draw the to create space. And then he waits for Mbappe to get to exactly the right position with with Ruben Diaz in exactly the right position. He waits for everything to fall his way and then he plays the pass, then he gets it back, then he does the finish. And that kind of that is instinctive virtuoso brilliance and that will always have a have a place. I think most coaches understand that you can't even with Messi, you need to have certain set routines, set movements to try and drag a defence out of shape. So Hakim, in that goal, actually, Hakimi and Mbappe were probably following instructions. They were probably told if Messi gets the ball in this sort of area, this is what you have to do. Hakimi has to support down the flank. Mbappe has to come across the defenders, make that run across the defenders to, to create the space for Messi. So there is probably a, like Steve says, there's a combination in that of the the pre the prearranged the preordained and the instinctive and that I I think is is what most coaches are working towards that that analysis of that goal is both excellent and also infuriatingly for you Rory backs up the point that I was just making in the so-called boring section yeah no I'm not saying that you were wrong I'm just saying you were being boring <laughs> yeah so so bo- boring for for boring read correct 
Um, in, but then, in this case, in this there's case, a way to be rare. right and engaging, Hugh, and one day you'll find it. <laughs> no, no, it's not going to happen for a while. That's why I'm the presenter, not the contributor, because I have no ideas of my own. I just steal them from other people. But that, but that, you, the analysis of that is exactly the way that you would break down the analysis of a moment of genius, but within the structure that is defined by the play that has been called either by the coach or changed at the line of scrimmage by the quarterback. So it's exact. It's exactly the same, and that's what's fascinating about it. Just with the examples you've given there, it's interesting you've talked, talked, talked about Mane uh, and Messi and Salah and I just wonder again if you have the structure of a team a back four or back three it seems as though we talked about the front threes and especially the wide attackers it seems to be is it possibly those players that trigger more than any other player these attacking movements because again wide attackers drifting infield fullbacks getting forward centre forwards adjusting their position attacking midfielders breaking forward it seems a lot a lot seems to happen when the ball arrives with these wide attackers now more than probably any other player on the pitch or is that maybe pushing it a bit too far because we're talking about goals being scored. So clearly it's got to happen. A lot has got to happen at the top end of the pitch, but is it, is it still what happens deeper on the pitch that enables this to happen? It does it start so deep from a, a centre half or a full back, but it just seems to be that they they seem to be the triggers for all this attacking movement. Their movement triggers four or five different players. And again, is that, is that's what's been worked on during the course of the of the week to 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 get all those players or the the biggest number of players in advantageous positions, but also defensively a... as well, because isn't it front free for everything? Because they 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 trigger the press as well if they are a pressing team. It depends. Yeah, we, we're talking about goals being scored, just uh, yeah, the goals just, that were scored recently. The, the, yes, the front absolutely, three are, are integral both in the offense and the defense, yes. offensively and defensively. Well, that's why Rory was talking about the the, the rise and the, the use of a front three. For, for both those reasons, for attacking and def- offense and defensive reasons. Yeah, obviously that wouldn't um, make any sense because it's not an American sport. So just attacking and defending a, reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just think with all those examples you've given there, all great goals, but again, all seem to be triggered by certain players in certain positions. There's an element of chicken and egg about that. Shortly, like, and I don't know the answer. It's a really, it's a really good question. Whether the front threes have risen because there are it, that that's how coaches want to start their their sort of set attacking movements that you, it's easy to do that if you have a have an, a, a forward who's cutting inside which is what all modern forwards do yeah. rather than sort of bombing down the wing does that and like you say i mean who who triggers a press in a team depends a little bit on who's the best at it so it like Patrick Bamford triggers Leeds's press but there'll be other teams where it's where it's it's a midfielder who triggers the press. It'll depend a little bit on the team. Although actually, having said that, the two what the two the pressing teams are Leeds, it's Bamford, Liverpool, it's Firmino when he's playing who triggers the press and runs the press. Although it can be Henderson, Spurs under Pochettino wouldn't have been Kane, might have been Son. So yeah, possibly it it may well be, and it would, well it wouldn't have been Kane or Eriksson. So it must have been Son or a midfielder who triggered the press for Spurs, but that yeah, it may be that often it's an attacking player just because of where I, they stand. But whether that whether that is because whether that's come first, whether it's that they've thought right, we're, we're going to play with these set plays, we need we need a trigger point, we don't have to play front threes, or whether it's the opposite and they're playing front threes and they thought that that guy has to be the trigger point. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I just think sometimes a lot of teams you you can see them kind of building to get the ball into that position and then. It's kind of slow, slow, and then everything quickens up. Of course, you, you're more advanced. You have to do that because the opponents, your opponents have, have bodies back behind the ball. But it just seems to be, you know, getting it from your your back three, back four into the midfield, out to a wide attacker or your centre forward who's dropped into a pocket of space. Then everything seems to happen very. So again, is that the pattern they're probably working on more? Is getting that ball into that area, into those players, and then <coughs> we've got four or five players moving off that 
and that's what you work on and work on. I presume that's what what Liverpool had done to 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 score the Mane goal. So Chinch, you, you were you were at Sheffield Wednesday at the same time that Tony Dorigo was at uh, Torino. Very much the Sheffield Wednesday of Italy uh, at the time. Is there? Yeah. Well, a little bit ahead of them because they'd already been relegated. Yeah, <laughs> so they're doing better on that narrative. Um, but does any uh, any of what uh, Steve said about that resonate with anything that you did with any of your clubs in the way that you you did drills in that way? Now we'll we'll talk about set pieces specifically in a moment in the way that you did drills and set pieces. But yeah. but is there is there any any part of that that you've got the ball? This is where I need you to be. Yeah, I, th- I think set plays. Obviously, they were they've always been important for every coach that I worked under. Certain coaches work more on things than others, but I, I was trying to think. We talked about shadow play, and we used to do. I, I, t- I think that tended to be say that the team was picked on a Friday. You tended to kind of go through the motions in a way where we're going to play four four. You always kind of played four four two until things start, and then you know if there's injuries and players coming in, it was just to familiarise them with where they were playing. It, it didn't seem to be done for any specific purpose. If I pass the ball there. This happens. It, it wasn't like that at all. It just seemed to be. And a lot of the time, you didn't need even opponents. It was just basically where you were, all, were going to be on the pitch. And it's a bit strange because you've all played those positions. It seems to be something that you did, but it didn't seem to be, well, this is why we're, we're doing this shadow play today, is to get this guy forward or to, to, you know, to, to, to get our, our fullbacks in advanced positions. It wasn't like that. It was basically just to familiarise you or the players that are going to be starting the game the weekend and the set set plays were where all the attention tended to be. So there wasn't any really attention on the the open play aspect of it. That's why I asked right at the top again about is it just purely down to set, but clearly not now with the maybe how players understand the game more. Uh the coaches are are talking to their players tactically a lot more than maybe they did with us. So the understanding is maybe there that you can saying, well, in open play, it will be tricky. It will be trickier than a set play maybe, but this is what we're planning to do. And the more we do it, the more you'll understand it. And everybody can play their part, even though you think, well, I've done my job, that, that ball's with somebody else. No, you all still have a part to play. But we never, no, I, I can't remember a single coach, and I worked with some very good coaches. We, it was never during open play, we never did sessions as the ones that we've been talking about, where one pass or one bit of movement triggers everything else. It, it, it was just, presume, you know, if you played in a four-four-two and you were a fullback and the ball went out to the left-sided midfielder, you tended as a fullback to go on the overlap. That and that wasn't coached. That was just basically what a fullback did in a four-four-two formation. It's as things changed tactically and different formations came in that maybe it's gone down this road. But I do think it's again the understanding of the players as to what's actually going on and assessing what's going on around them. But it still all boils down to doing it in training, becoming muscle memory, playing the same pass, making the same run without even thinking about it. But it's not something I ever did certainly in, in open play. But set plays, it was a very different kind of uh, train of thought. So it's, it's another aspect of the chicken and egg thing. If, if for example, as a left back, you would always go on the overlap when the left midfielder had it, mm-hmm. the opposition would know that was going to happen. And so they would think about a way of countering it, which would then have meant eventually that you'd maybe have to think about doing something else, maybe coming Not inside. No, actually, so. no, I don't think it was like, because it was four four two against four four two really. So if I went forward, the right winger midfielder I was playing against would, would kind of track me back if he didn't. Then there was a problem. You get a two against one, and you can maybe get a cross in. But that was—it was basically so obvious. You got two set formations playing against each. You're basically man for man. So really, everybody kind of knew what was going to happen. So whoever was playing in front of me on the left hand side of midfield, if the opposition right back came forward, I would expect him to track him forward because I had a job to do against against my man. So it was very because the game was had such a set pattern. There wasn't really any confusion there. It's just if people didn't do their jobs is when you'd have a problem. They didn't track their runners. 
And that, that's when problems, and that's what coaches really got angry with. Um, but again, that's all changed. Our formations change from game to game, personnel changes. So presumably you do have to work a lot harder with the set of players you've got for a particular game and formation so they do understand exactly what happens when the ball or a certain player is in possession. It's interesting, actually. I wonder how much that, that actually kind of illustrates the shifting nature of football at the risk of sounding horribly pretentious that until relatively recently, and although it doesn't always seem like it, Chinch's career was quite recent, the he does feel in a lot of ways like a creature from another age. Mm-hmm. The um, it, Football was basically an individual sport. It was it was a succession. If you think about like the 53 Cup final, just a little bit before Chinch's time, he was in the, he was in the crowd rather than on the pitch. The... Um, <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> like that's known as the Matthews final because Matthews set up three goals. Although Stan Mortensen obviously has has a has a reason to feel a bit like upset about that. But the Matt, if you watch that game, they all knew what Stanley Matthews was doing. Stanley Matthews always did the same thing. He mm. beat his man and got to the ball and put a cross in. That was that was that was his game. And at no point did any team think we could probably put another man on him and see what happened. Like, they didn't try and double up on Stanley Matthews. So not for a minute, sort of questioning Stanley Matthews's legacy but it'd be interesting to know what would have happened had he run into a team who thought we don't we're doing three at the back today lads and we're playing a wing back because we want to be able to double up on him but that's, that's what that's what I meant about asking Chinch that question about that, that that eventually somebody will decide well hang on a minute if, if we're going to do that and they're going to do that then we're going to do something different yeah what, but no I, one I did, did. I, I, yeah I didn't no mean did. yeah, immediately exactly. I meant over the course of the 20 years that followed but that equally, was the developments that took place it's it's nuts that in the 20, 25 years that 4-4-2 versus 4-4-2 was the norm, particularly in England, that no, and I suppose in Germany it would have been the Libero against the Libero, everyone played the same way, that no one thought, except maybe in Italy, what we have to do is not let them do what they want to do, we have to change. And the, the yeah, the kind of, the era of, if you look at the span of football history post, post-war maybe, it is basically everyone playing the same system and refusing to do anything to to nullify the opposition it, it seems to me that it seems to me that football and 442 was the game and we played it well, no, when we because... the players and the coaches were in charge of how you played it didn't seem, that thought never seemed to occur no that that's football so we have to just be good at playing 442 well in england particularly the coaches were like the, hist- the history of coaching is that they were there first of all to make you fit that was the mm. idea and then they were there to kind of keep you straight and make sure you did your jobs and mm-hmm. the the idea was that the team that did its jobs the best would win the game. It was effectively an individual battle. So every, everyone marked man to man, no one did zonal, everyone played the same system. And if, if you're, yeah, like you say, if your right winger didn't track you and you crossed the ball to score a goal, then it was that right winger's fault. You could yeah. apportion blame to an individual. That held basically true for 100 years. That was how mm. we viewed football, particularly in this country. It was a little bit different in the rest of Europe. But not hugely different for most most of that span. It was you played the same system as the opposition, and whoever failed to concentrate was at fault. And that I I, I always find it baffling in commentary. Chinch doesn't do this particularly, but the idea that someone's always at fault for a goal, I think, is is a hangover from that era. That yeah, often as Chinch will point out, it's because someone's not tracked back to the to the to the far post, or someone's let their runner go, or whatever. But sometimes. You just concede a really good goal, but there's nothing you can do to stop. And that's because over the last 20 years, football has become less about individual responsibility, although that's still massively important, and more about a battle of ideas between yeah. coaches that you are that the, that the system is what matters, not kind of the individual players doing this, that, or the other. That everything is about the system that you're playing. It might rest to some extent on the players carrying out their instructions successfully and effectively, but. Often games are won and lost because one system is better than the other, not because 
players aren't doing doing what they're meant to be doing all of the time. It's because the system that Team X has is better than the system Team Y has, or in most cases, the amount of money that Team X has to put into their system <laughs> is, is greater than the amount of money that Team Y has. But that is a fundamental shift in football, that it's no longer just about players not doing their jobs. That's not the only route that you get dropped. And, and it's interesting that in, in the comments that Nagelsmann made over the course of, I think, a couple of interviews over the last few months, he, he mentioned that 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 football is very much hiding behind, uh, I'm paraphrasing, hiding behind its traditions in order to not embrace the possible changes that he is he is suggesting might be good for the game. So uh, a century of four four two is probably a little bit of an extreme example of that, but it's, I, I think, the same principle behind which. Just to finish off quickly on the idea of set-piece coaches and throwing coaches, and, 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 and Chidge, that is one thing that you would have rehearsed Oh, yeah. set in set ways yeah. is there any way that you can imagine that way of thinking being enhanced by having individual coaches to the extent that those set plays that you are already rehearsing years ago are now being rehearsed to such an extent that they have a bespoke coach trying to make them as efficient and as effective as possible yeah it tended to be if you had a, if you had a manager and a, a coach working under me let's go back to Joe Royal and Willie Donicky you had a, a manager who, who managed the players talked to the players and a coach who coached them Willie did all the all the set plays and we worked together on on delivery and and movement in the box and all this type of thing and 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 where to outswing corners inswing corners what we were looking to do and we worked out so he basically was the set piece coach uh, set piece coach but he was the coach now they're tending to 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 bring these guys in to specific and, and defensive set play coaches as well as well as offense attacking set piece coaches so th- again you've got that various well how we defend is of course very different we've got the same set of players out there but again we've got to think maybe differently and I, I presume I don't know what kind of training these they, they must be football coaches but then to go into such a specific area where all they, that must be all they concentrate but again there's the market for it and then the throwing coaches now come to the fore as well quite a few clubs have, have that as well so again I think it's just a, it's trying to squeeze every percentage you can out of every possibility of scoring a goal. So it's completely understandable. But where it tended to be the coaching team did the set plays, now that's maybe been passed on to other individuals that will take the the set piece taker or the throwing taker and and the players that are going to be in the box to work with them. Maybe it just takes a bit of the workload off off the the head coaching team. I don't know. Maybe that's... Again, everyone's got to be involved in the process of what we're looking to do. How are we looking to score? What players have we got on the pitch today? We're going to go with this plan today because these three big guys are playing and this is where they're going to be in the penalty area when we take take set pieces. But what's interesting, i found as well, is a lot of teams now defensively against... Clearly, there's the attacking team will have a wide free kick and there's definitely a plan in place. The defensive team now is, is trying to counter that and say, well, we know what you want to do. You want us to be kind of penalty spot and fairly deep right on top of our goalkeeper a lot of teams now are keeping really high lines and are looking kind of to me it looks really over the top you know you're on the edge of your own penalty area for a wide free kick but it's all designed to try and make the opposition think ah right maybe what we've got planned so as you said about quarterbacks kind of on the hoof thinking ah wait a minute they're playing higher so there's more space so maybe the ball that I play in I don't put as much pace on it so they've got to then change the way that they deliver and the attacking players have got their time their runs a little bit differently so it's kind of it's a really interesting game that's being played out there's clearly set plans there for 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 attacking set pieces but it's how defences now are trying to counter because really they're in a horrible position where the ball is is stopped You've got a, a guy over the ball who can deliver it exactly where he wants it. You've got big lads that are going to be on the move to get on the end of it. Defensively, it's a very hard situation to manage. So to try and be in some kind of control of that, 
they the first thing they try and do is stay out of their penalty area, high up the pitch, get the goalkeeper to be off his line to come and maybe deal with anything into the box. So they're working out ways to try and counter how the success that teams have with set plays. And that's really interesting as well. So presumably the defensive um, set-piece coaches at clubs are looking at what opponents are doing specifically and saying, right, how can we counter that? Because the last thing we want to do is play into their hands and be in a position that they want us to be in. So it's kind of from both sides of it. Everybody's working very hard. Still on, because we talked about the open play game being a lot better. Maybe, I don't know whether more goals are scored now from open play than ever before. Set plays, I don't know, are they as, as important? Are we still seeing as many goals from set plays as we important. used to do? So again, if they're more important, more work's yeah. going in. So then defensively, you have to put more work in to try and counter that because that could be the difference between winning and losing. I think Dean Smith made the point after Danny Ings scored that amazing scissor kick overhead goal against Newcastle for, for Aston Villa near the start of the season that that they view set pieces and the, the speciality of the coaches that can help them execute them to be vitally important to any success they're going to have this season because that all came from a throw-in level with the edge of the penalty area flicked on by Tyrone Mings and then Danny Ings with, with the brilliant finish. Now, yes, you need an outstanding centre-forward to be able to do what Ings did in that situation, but everything that came before it had been rehearsed. Yes, the yes. Because you, Dean, Dean... You know, you're not rehearsing to score an overhead kick, are you? But again, no, he's, he's, but, he's the kind of plan is to well, side-foot it in. It'll be a basic goal, but he, his brilliance, individual brilliance, but again, the plan, the throw in, the flick on, cause get Dean, him where they need him. Dean Smith works on the basis, and you know we all know this from watching football. How many times do you have a throw-in level with the edge of your opponent's penalty area? Often. So what Villa have thought is we need to make maximise those situations because we have five to ten of those situations in every game. If we can convert one of them into a goal, we're in business, and that's what they were able to do there. And and, and focusing on the kind of thing that um, in in what is beautifully cyclical for us, but also infuriating for three members of the group. Um, diversifying the coaching and focusing on either position groups or elements of play, um, exactly copying what the NFL has been doing for years. There is one other thing that we should mention. As as teams get more reliant on specific triggers for certain movements, as Jim says, both within set plays and in open play, teams will try and disrupt that. And I think we saw a little vision of, of where things were going under Sarri at Chelsea, where they very clearly decided that they were going to draw the press. And that is now a crucial thing. That's what teams increasingly see it now at all levels. But Sarri was the first the first coach that I can remember in England. He'd obviously done it with Napoli before and Empoli, deciding that the the way to deal with a, with a high pressing team was to draw them into the press before they wanted to be drawn into it. So you would get his his team messing about at the back to an extent that that seemed basically suicidal. But the, the whole idea behind it was we will bring you further forward than you want to be. We will make you press us because you will think there is an opportunity and then bang, 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 we're through you. And we've broken that first line, possibly the second line of the press. And we can then set into motion our our own attacking patterns. Just Sarri is, is the archetypal coach. If you think about all that Sarri ball stuff at Napoli, Steve would have seen a load of it. They were all coached attacking moves that was what Sarri Ball was and you can maybe make a case that his failure at Chelsea was to do with not having enough time or not having the ability to institute those moves in his team but essentially what he was the the forebearer of, of that certainly in Italian football that he wanted his team to place in certain patterns and the way that he 
the way that he worked out to deal with the high pressing teams in the Premier League, which don't really exist in Italy, was to say, right, we are going to play these, we are going to play around with it in our own box. You are going to press us, and we will be good enough to break that press. Yeah, even teams are doing it in the Championship. If you watch West Brom play in the Championship, the Ishmael method is just all out press. And teams, after about four or five games, they thought, oh, there isn't a plan B. That is how you're going to play against us. So, what do we do? And you're seeing teams change their formations, change their attackers in particular, to look to get beyond and to turn West Brom around. And I spoke to one of the coaches at West Brom, and he was, I don't know why he was surprised. He said, well, how quickly teams have worked out, A, what we're going to do, and B, how to maybe counter it. They now, rather than say, oh, we really don't want you to press, we're going to. Right, what do we do? We Again, we maybe play two passes, encourage you on, one ball over the top with a quick striker. QPR did it at, at the Hawthorns and scored after 45 seconds. So again, it shows you how, rather than just admit and say, oh, we're just going to get overrun, we're going to get overwhelmed. No, what can we do? And it doesn't take much. It can take three passes and you can turn what a team, a team's strength against them completely. So it's happening, coaches at every level, players at every level are understanding that there are ways of, of tweaking how you play and your personnel to... to to give very good teams, high-pressing teams. And that's what, have because there's so much of the high-press now that you do have to try and, if you can't play through it, bypassing it. But again, encouraging it on is the interesting thing, isn't it? Saying, I know you want to do it, we want you to do it as well. And yeah. then if a team starts to press and finds themselves running back towards their own goal, it's how quickly the doubts start to set in and you think, oh, I'm not quite as keen because I know where this might end up. So it's again, it's a, it's a psychological battle as well. It's, it's interesting. One of the, one of the best... Um teams I have seen play against Manchester City under Pep Guardiola was Bristol City managed by yeah. Lee Johnson which is yeah. a strange thing to say but when they, they played each other in the um, the League Cup semi-final so they had two goes at it and Lee Johnson managed to find a way of beating the Manchester City press that worked almost every time and it was brilliant it was just a big switch from the left back to yep. the right winger, which is something that, funnily enough, Manchester City have been trying to cultivate over the years, whether it's the right-footed or left-footed left-back. And they they genuinely, it worked every time, and they gave City loads of problems just by that simple mm-hmm. one ball to beat yep. what Manchester City were attempting to do. And if you can find, yes, it's, it's the essential, one of the essential things about all sport is they've done something, what can we do? They've done that, so how can we respond in the back and forth? I suppose it comes, it comes back into the, this play. Again, we know what the opposition are going to do, but when your centre-half or your full-back gets it, it is going to be maybe don't play into central midfield. It's one pass wide, one pass forward. Yeah. And you work on that in training to say a team's going to do this. It's here, it's there, it's gone. Your centre forward knows what's happening. He stays on side. So again, that's the playbook element of saying, well, how do we turn what Manchester City do so well against them? And it and can be done <laughs> relatively easily as long as your players are switched on enough and understand what you're trying to do every time you get the ball back. And and the, the, to, to try and alleviate a misunderstanding about it, it is not nev- and never is set in stone. If mm. I'm going to do this to that guy over there, but that guy's there, then I'm going to do that. And if yes. that guy's over there, then I'm going to do that. And it's just about understanding that it's yeah. not just necessarily what's written down. It is a variation thereof. And it still requires that individual brilliance to be able to execute in the best way possible. This has um, been a good episode, people, even though Hugh came up with it. It's been uh, it's been interesting, hasn't it? Steve, been, have you enjoyed it? I, really so, I think it. it's going to be a two-parter. It's gone on for so long. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Falling asleep there. Sorry. So in that case, it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori What a Soccer Story. This is usually when Andy tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details are moved. But perhaps, Stephen, you'd like to introduce what we're going to do today. The, the, we've had a couple of people get in touch in recent days, Chinch, with videos featuring you as a player. Oh, thank God for that. I thought you were going to say something else. Anniversary moments for highlights that weren't necessarily yours but you happened to be a 
a figure within them. Okay. And one of them really struck a chord with me. And I just wondered whether we could perhaps, you know, we've talked a lot about how you transition from being a player to a pundit. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder whether we could bring pundit chinch and, and take him back a few years and get him to analyse something from player chinches. Okay, interesting. This is, this is on the hoof stuff, people. Okay, okay. So you... this is a game between Everton and Sheffield Wednesday. Sheffield Wednesday. Wednesday. Ah, um, okay. I'm now sharing my screen so that the group can see it. And yep. centre, and slightly blurred because it's uh, from Twitter and been enlarged to the full screen, is the number three being sported by... Andy Hinchcliffe. Look um, at that arse. Let's first of all talk about that arse. What an arse. What an arse. What a kit. What's, that's, that's an amalgamation of kits, isn't it? We clearly... That's, it's awful. It's yeah, awful. our kit man has taken two <laughs> no, kits and we've, no, had no, to, no. we've had to it's, cut and shut them together, surely. No, no, it's not. It is a cut and shut, but it's because that kit, that Everton Away kit was yellow with kind of black, faded black stripes and black shorts. But obviously, at Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. plain blue and white can't wear your home shirt. Yeah. But you can't wear your black shorts from your away kit. So you've had nope. to wear the blue kit, the blue shorts nope. from the home kit. Yeah, so well, that's why a... my ass looks massive. I mean, you're away naval. You're away yeah. naval up and at home naval down, Chinch. Yes, exactly. So we're well going put. to play it, and Chinch, bearing in mind that uh, quite often you are required to give immediate punditry skills uh, based on a goal that you have uh, never seen before. Okay. Uh, perhaps this has left your memory for reasons that will become clear. Uh, okay. The player is Paolo Di Canio. The defender is Andy Hinchcliffe. Okay. Di Canio has located Hurst. Hurst has located Di Canio. Di Canio can seal it. Away from Hinchcliffe. And again, Paolo Di Canio. Three goals, three points for Sheffield Wednesday. They've done the Italian job on Everton. A young Peter Drury. Yeah, it's, yes. it's the... What I don't like about Peter here says, and again. What are you doing, Peter? He's meant to be my friend. I genuinely don't remember. You're not going to remember a goal like that, are you? But I, Is you that see, because I've, you were turned inside out so often? Well, just hold on, just hold on a minute, Steve. Concussion. Just hold on a minute, Steve. I'm just trying to see. Yeah, there's probably quite a lot of problems. The thing is, I track the run. I track the run. I don't try and play True. Palo offside because if I do that, he's in on goal and, and we'll score anyway. So I track the run. Um, Have you got a bit Palo tight quite, to him, pa Chinch? To be fair... You got a bit tight to him early on, on there, though. Shut up, Steve. Uh, the thing is, Paolo Di Canio was quite a good player as well. And sometimes as a defender, you I, I bet he didn't I bet he did that to quite a number of people as well. You know, twisted and turned and scored a goal. But I you know, I tracked the run, I stayed goal side, I stayed on my feet. I don't know whether I turned my back. If I turned my back on him, then that is again the the last thing any defender should be doing. But if that's if that's a modern player, I, I would have to talk about Di Canio's individual brilliance, his movement, his footwork, his composure, his balance. I would. I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to get myself out of check. Is it? It's not the worst piece of defending I've ever done. <laughs> I don't. I, I can. There must be numerous examples of me defending more poorly than that. I've scored own goals and stuff like that. My goodness sake. That actually was one of my better moments. <laughs> but I was just outdone. Just outdone by a, a, a genius of a footballer. That's how I would describe that. When Rory said that he would like pundits to stop blaming defenders for goal and giving credits to the attackers earlier on in the podcast, little did he know that that would come to the fore almost immediately. But Rory, looking at that, Rory, it's a very good piece of attacking play, isn't it? Is, I, is, there, a lot, is there a lot I could have done differently, would you, do you feel? Kick I think I think to me, and I bear in mind, Chinch, I know nothing about football. Mm. I think it looks to me like the shape is the problem. That the Everton's defence has been. Oh, I thought in my shape, I was just your overweight. shape is a, your shape is wonderful. That is quite a bottom. Yes, but the the um, 
the shape of the, the, the back line. You're too high for a start. And why have I been drawn onto the right side you, of the, the central defence You've been sucked there. in by Di Canio's run. Mm. The ball, but I mean, the, the central defence is parted by one simple forward ball. That's not your fault. The, I, do, I do think at one point or another, mm. you... You maybe got a bit lost and didn't, and forgot what you were meant to be doing. Maybe you're thinking about a Chinese. No, I was I, I was close on numerous occasions. <laughs> you was never close enough. You he, you were outpaced by a player who at that time was about 32. No, no, that's not. Yeah, but how old was I? I can't have been a, a spring chicken. But anyway, I might have had. I might have been carrying an injury during. That. I'm not Almost making excuses for myself. Injury, yeah. It was. I don't think. As I say, that wasn't the worst piece of defending I've ever seen. Paolo, it was a great goal. I'm sure he remembers it fondly and doesn't blame me for it. And amazingly, not long after that, Chinch, you left Everton and joined Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, so. great yeah. audition. <laughs> uh, well, I must have, it must, they must have seen something. The basics, the defensive basics think, were there. I think what's happened there is that Ron Atkinson seen that arse and thought, there is a man who enjoys a kick Hold on a minute. If I concede a goal like that against... Oh, I don't want to run anybody down, but someone a bit shitter than Paolo, <laughs> I, I maybe have to take it in the neck a bit more. But this is, this is Paolo Di Canio we're talking about here. And he was quite a good attacker, so that's that's my defence. And I don't, I'm not, I don't get things massively wrong. I don't feel that that change is your defence. Thank uh, you. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Also, buy the merch at tpublic.com. We haven't mentioned that very much today, which is strange, probably because you can now buy tickets to the live show at the National Football Museum on Thursday, the 4th of November. Just head to nationalfootballmuseum.com. That's Thursday, the 4th of November, 7pm start. We'd love to see you there. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, to Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. To be fair, that was a really good episode. I enjoyed that. Well done, Hugh. Credit where uh, due. We, yeah. we, need, we, we need to understand that if I set up uh, uh, a subject as being related to the NFL, there will be a point during the meet, <laughs> the body of the conversation, where I reference the NFL. Yeah, there's referencing and then there's banning on about it for about 15 it just, minutes. He always wants to mention Tom Brady... Uh, defense off a certain thing he cannot he has to tick those boxes doesn't he cornerbacks yeah cornerbacks lighthouses all the these you know I don't want me to play clock audibles funnily, funnily enough he, uh, the cornerbacks are becoming like the real real players no get, go uh, away no, no, no. don't want to know. Just we like don't fullbacks. care. Just like fullbacks in soccer, just like fullbacks in soccer are coming to the Join us next week for another yes. episode. Yes, really, piece. really important. Don't let this put you off coming to the live show. We're really excited about it, and he won't talk about it. No, yeah, there's no NFL on the live show. That's a that's a promise. The National Football Museum. I don't know. NF. Oh, nearly. <laughs> oh God, George, George.